Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we begin our morning with you lifting up house churches that are meeting today and throughout this week around the world. Many of them um, meeting under duress, behind closed doors, being hunted down, persecuted, some being killed. Pray for our brothers and sisters um, who have a lot more difficult time coming together than we have. We pray for strength. We pray for boldness. We pray for wisdom. We pray that your gospel would continue to go out into the dark places, that it would have its effect on hearts, that it would take hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh that beat for your glory. Father, we pray for strength in the midst of persecution, for perspective in the midst of hard times. I would pray for the leaders of these groups, that they would be wise in how they move and how they lead. God, we pray that they would go out um, in a manner that only your spirit could do, in ways that can't be explained by human effort alone. Father, for our time this morning, we are so very thankful for the opportunity to dive into your word together. I simply pray that you would increase, that I would decrease. That we would faithfully expose your word, that we would soak in it, enjoy it, and let it have its way with us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please turn to 1 John chapter 1. It's John the epistle, not John the gospel. It's a little bit further back in your Bible, toward Revelation. Our time today is going to be divided into three sections. We're going to begin by diving in together and unpacking 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. After doing this, we're then going to take one of those truths, a very specific truth from that passage, and we're then going to unpack it further. We're going to delve into it a little more. Um, We're going to pick it up, kind of turn it around, look at it from a few different sides, and see exactly how it works. and what it looks like a little more. And finally, we're going to look at one very personal um, example of how this truth has played itself out. Okay, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When we discuss scripture at Crosspoint, a lot of times we're encouraged to import our senses. We don't need a lot of encouragement to do that with this passage because these verses are all about the senses. Look at all the sensory words in here. We have hearing, and just in these four verses, we have hearing twice, 
we have seeing or looking at four times, and those build up to, to the apex, to the most intimate one here, which is touching. So first, let's take a step back and look more at the structure of these passages. We have verse 1, which starts with a series of phrases that all modify a main subject, which is the word of life. Verse 2 is a bit of a parenthesis, which is reemphasizing the truths of the whole passage. And then verse 3 picks up where verse 1 left off and gives us our main verb, which is we proclaim. And then the end of 3 and moving into verse 4 give us two purpose clauses that tell us the point behind all of this. Okay, so we'll begin with our subject. It's the word of life. In thinking of John and the term word, you may be reminded of the Gospel of John and how it starts, where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he's using the word to, ref to refer directly to the man, Jesus. So word means Jesus in John's Gospel. Here, he's using it kind of like that, but with a little bit of a twist. Here, he seems to use the term not only to refer to the man Jesus, but also to his teachings, um, his works, everything around him. So it's just a little bit more of a general term, not just referring to Jesus, but referring to everything around Jesus. So the emphasis here isn't, when, when we talk about word of life, the emphasis isn't so much on Jesus as the word, but more on Jesus as the life. Jesus as life itself, which is confirmed when we look in verse 2, and he calls Jesus simply the life. Okay? So a good way to think of a word of life is the message of life, the message of the gospel. Jesus and everything around Jesus, everything that he did, everything that he said. Okay? Um, you'll see these modifying verbs, modifying phrases. If you go back to the beginning of verse 1, the first modifying phrase of word of life is that which was from the beginning, which highlights the eternal nature of Christ. But while John starts with the eternal nature of Christ, his emphasis here is actually to remind readers that the eternal Jesus came to earth and lived as a human being. Look at all the other modifying phrases in verse 1. All of them point to the earthiness of Jesus, that he was a real guy with a real body. John starts his letter in awe that he who was eternal stepped straight into history and could be heard and could be seen and could be touched. Can you imagine that? The apostles experienced Christ. They saw him, they heard him, and they touched him. They had empirical evidence of Christ. That term empirical or empirical evidence, we usually hear in scientific circles or legal circles, it means first-hand knowledge or experience of something, okay? It's not hearsay, it's not a theory, it's actually having it right in front of you. The apostles had empirical evidence, first-hand knowledge of Jesus, the man. My wife's name's Casey. Casey and I were engaged for 11 months before we got married. Nine of those 11 months were spent on two different continents, which was a very long time. When we were finally in the same place, same country, um, same city, same room, we would, one of us would periodically, literally walk over to the other one and just poke them. Um, like it's 
really cheesy, but we just walk over and poke them. And just to remind ourselves that this was real. They're, they're actually there. They're in this room with me right now. The apostles could do that with Jesus at any point in time when they were on earth with him. It may have been a little bit awkward, but at any point in time, they could have walked over to him and just poked him to make sure that he was real, okay? They could hear his actual voice as he spoke to them day after day and as he talked to other people. They could look into his actual eyes, not the blue eyes of some six-foot Jesus that we see in our movies a lot of times, but more likely the brown eyes of a real Middle Eastern Jewish guy, most of whom actually aren't that tall. After he was resurrected, they could walk up and they could touch his hands and they could touch his feet and they could actually touch his side. It was firsthand, it was empirical. He was a real guy with them every day, just as real as you and I are walking next to each other, okay? That's where we begin with our passage. That's, all of that is summed up in our subject, the word of life, because it's not just talking about the word of life, it's talking about the experienced word of life, the word of life that could be saw, that could be heard, that could be touched. So let's move from our subject to our verb. Our verb is going to be found in verse 3, and it is to proclaim. Okay, look in verse 3. What we've heard, what we've seen, what we've touched, these things we proclaim also to you. If you look back in verse 2, he breaks up this proclamation into two parts, into testimony and then actual proclamation. Both of these come with a certain type of authority. Okay? Testimony comes with the authority of experience. To testify to something means that you saw it and then you, you testify to it. Okay? You have firsthand knowledge of it. So there's an experience that, that's inside of you because you saw it, you experienced it, and now you're telling about it, okay? So that's to testify. To proclaim, it's the experience of commission. In testifying, that's firsthand knowledge, the experience is inside your, yourself. But to proclaim something means that you were commissioned, the authority comes from outside of you, okay? Think of Acts 1.8. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus, some of his last words to the apostles, saying, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other ends of the earth, other ends of the earth. That has both testify, you're going to be my witnesses, and it has the idea of commissioning. Jesus telling them, you will be my witnesses. Think of the Great Commission, him sending them out. Go and make disciples. They're commissioned by Christ. He said, all authority has been given to me, and so I'm giving it to you, and I'm sending you out to bear witness to me. And so here we have proclamation, and it has both of those. Um, the, apostles, the apostle John is saying, we have seen these things, we have heard these things, we have touched Jesus. We can bear witness to them as firsthand eyewitnesses. And so we have this authority in ourselves through experience, and we had this commission from Christ to go out and proclaim. We are sent out ones, sent out to proclaim. Okay. In putting this subject and this verb together, we are going to see the central truth behind our passage. Look back in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. These verses lay out for us a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture 
that we're going to call God's show and tell. Okay? You guys remember how show and tell works? When you're a kid growing up, you go to class and you bring something and you show it and then you tell about it. Okay? So you bring, you show, and you tell. God's show and tell works a little bit differently. In God's show and tell, God brings, God shows, and his people tell about it. Okay? You guys see how that works? God shows and his people tell. God shows himself to his people and to his creation, and his people get to tell about his greatness. God is the revealer. He is the initiator. His people are witnesses and heralds, bearing witness to his character and his works, and they're making proclamation to others of what they've seen and what they've heard. God's the shower, which means his people don't have to put on a show for him or have to make up things to make him look good. He doesn't need that. Their part, our part, is to first recognize God's hand and his work and then to bear witness and to proclaim what he's done. The concept of God revealing himself and his people talking about it is seen throughout scripture. From the very beginning, God has revealed himself to his creation. He walked and talked with them in the garden. He made his covenant with Abraham and told him all that the families of the earth would be blessed through him. You guys turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 10. We won't turn too many places this morning um, because we'd spend a lot of time turning, but I want you guys to see the actual words of this passage. Exodus chapter 10. If you remember, we're, we're going through the plagues here in Exodus 10, and we have Moses, the players, and we have Pharaoh, we have God, um, most of you are somewhat familiar with that story. In Exodus 10, 1 and 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. God's saying, go to Pharaoh that I may show these signs that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and grandsons how I dealt harshly, that you may know. God's saying that I may show that you may tell. Okay, You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 4, we have the apostles who just after Pentecost they had gone out proclaiming and then they were dragged into the religious authorities. And Acts 4 verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness, they being the religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they called them in and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They recognized they had been with Jesus and the apostles told them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to obey you or God, you can judge. But we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. Okay? God showing, God revealing, his people taking it in, and his people talking about it. 
And we even have, if you look at the apostles, you know, you think they're kind of a, a unique situation because they actually walk with Jesus. But we see the idea of passing down to next generations when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see four generations. Paul saying the things you have heard from me, Paul, one generation, to Timothy, things you have heard, two witnesses, and trust of faithful men, three generations, who will be able to teach others also, four generations. And so you already see this idea of passing down these truths of what's been seen and what's been heard. Okay? So is everybody comfortable with that idea? The central truth that we're bringing out of these passages is God's show and tell, of God showing his people and his people telling about it. Okay? Then we come to our purpose clauses. You guys will hear Ben talk a lot about henna clauses, uh, just being the Greek word that kind of that usually denotes purpose. Okay? We have two of these here. Um, going back into the passage. At the end of three, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. These two so that's are there to show us that proclamation is not an end in itself. It's not just we proclaim and then that's it. We did it just so that it could be proclaimed. Proclamation is never an end in itself. These two purpose clauses show one shows an immediate purpose and one shows a greater ultimate purpose. The immediate purpose is fellowship and the ultimate purpose is joy. Okay, so going into the first one in fellowship... The fellowship created by Christ in his earthly ministry was never meant to be limited to the apostles, but to extend to further generations of believers. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? He's praying that I don't just ask for these only, meaning the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the apostles spoke to other people. They believed through their word. On down the line, on down the line, 2,000 years later, we get to us. You actually see here Jesus praying for us, okay, for his church on down through history. Um, and so it was never meant to end with the apostles. It was meant to continue on to further generations. Um, fellowship, the word fellowship, became a specifically Christian word. It denotes common participation in the grace of God. Fellowship between believers is always based on fellowship, shared fellowship with Christ. And so when we think of fellowship, don't sit back and think, you know, I grew up with like fellowship hall and what that meant is the hall that we go to and hang out. And so we just think of fellowship as, yeah, it's just people hanging out. Um, when we look at the, the biblical idea of fellowship, there's never just a direct communication between believers. We have fellowship not just because we're in the same place. We have fellowship not just because we have similar interests or we kind of like each other or it's okay to hang out with each other or we have kids the same age or any of that. All that stuff's great. But fellowship exists between believers because of their shared fellowship with Christ. Okay? Think for a second about an orchestra. One of my favorite parts of an orchestra is at the very beginning because you have all of these instruments and you hear all of them. They're all doing their thing. You got violins over here, you got oboes and things like that. And they're all kind of tuning each other and they're all getting their thing done. And then everybody stops. And then you have one violin that gives one note. And then every single other instrument tunes into that one note. They don't try to tune off of each other. 
because that would be mass chaos. They tune off of one note, and because they're tuned into that one note, they actually all then become in tune with each other. That's fellowship. We are tuned in with Christ, and being tuned in with Christ, we then become tuned in with each other and are able to have fellowship with each other. That's what he says because he doesn't just stop here. Look back at verse 3. He doesn't just stop at saying the purpose is that you'll have fellowship with us because you can't just stop there. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And it says, so that you may have fellowship with us in Christ because that's where fellowship happens. There was a German pastor early 20th century named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, you always sound really smart when you, when you say Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You're like, Bonhoeffer said. Um, but Bonhoeffer was an incredible theologian. He died in a German concentration camp in World War II. He wrote a couple of books. One of them is called Life Together. It's the best work I've ever seen on Christian community. It's a very, very small read. Um, in there, he, he says, we dare not try to have direct fellowship with others. We can meet others only through the mediation of Christ. Anytime that we try to have direct fellowship with, with each other, he said it's going to be based on human standards and human fellowships, which means it's going to be based on control and manipulation. I'm going to try to shape you into what I want you to be, and I'm going to do everything to try to get you to fit in that mold. He said the only way that believers can have healthy fellowship with others is not going direct, but going in and through Christ. Okay? That is where, that's where our fellowship lies. It may catch your attention here that in this passage, the stated purpose of proclamation isn't salvation specifically, but he says that it's fellowship. Um, but then we have to remember that salvation, properly understood, is a restoring of fellowship with God. It's reconciliation, okay? Sometimes, and we, we deal a lot with, with other cultures and, um, and whatnot, and a lot of times in in our culture here in the States, we're very legally minded. There's just legal stuff going on all around us. And so a lot of times we get into the habit of mostly referring to salvation in legal terms. And you'll find legal terms in, in Scripture. I mean, go through Romans. It's in there. Uh, and so it's a valid way to understand it. But in other cultures, especially those that are much more relationally focused, um, a lot of times they're more comfortable referring to salvation in terms of relational Ideas such as alienation and fellowship, okay, being separated from God and being restored to fellowship with God, which is also in Scripture. So all that to say is all of those are good and right and in Scripture, um, and all of them are there so that we'll understand different facets of what has been done for us in Christ. And so here, John doesn't necessarily go the legal route, but he helps us see salvation through the fellowship route of we have fellowship with each other through the proclamation of Christ, and we have that fellowship in Christ. Okay? So that's the immediate purpose. Let's go to our second henna clause. Our second purpose is going to be the ultimate purpose, which is joy. So the, the immediate purpose is fellowship with each other through Christ. The ultimate purpose is going to be joy. He says, so that our joy may be complete, and that our is inclusive, because he just said, you guys have fellowship with us, and so there's now an hour, and now our joy is complete. It reminds us of Psalm 16, where the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, so joy is the ultimate purpose. So here we actually see the divine order and how things work. And it's proclamation, fellowship, joy. Okay, run through it in the passage. And here we even see the idea of God showing himself. And then we're taking it in. And then there's proclamation about it. And then that leads to fellowship with each other through and in Christ. And then that leads to the ultimate purpose of joy. Okay, that's our first section. That's our first movement. We talked about we're going to have a couple of movements this morning. So now we're going to take one specific truth from this passage and we're going to get a little more specific with it. And the truth is, think back through the idea of God show and tell. If you have God showing and then as people proclaiming about it, one of the vital things that has to happen there is that when God shows, his people have to be able to see it. We're going to sit for a while this morning on the ability to see when God shows himself. When God is at work, how do we see it? Because we can't proclaim it if we don't see it. Okay? And the proclamation is in the fellowship and the joy and moving forward. And so the crux is going to be when God shows himself, his people have to see it. There are two components we're going to talk about in seeing. One of them is the ability or capacity to see. And then the other is training to know what to look for. The first one is actually pretty straightforward and pretty simple. And it's that the Spirit gives us the capacity to see. You don't have to turn there. First John, I'm sorry, First Corinthians. You must be a believer to see as we're defining seeing this morning. First Corinthians 2, Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit for their folly to him, for he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the Spirit gives us the ability to see, the ability to understand. Without a changed heart, asking someone to see in the way the Bible is talking about seeing is asking them to do the impossible. And we see that again in, First, in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we start with the ability or the capacity to see, and it's very simply, without the Spirit of God, it's not possible. It's the Spirit himself that opens our eyes. Okay? Now that our eyes are open, what do we do with it? So we move to the second part. The Spirit opens our eyes so that we can see, but it's Scripture that then teaches us how to see by showing us what to look for. Think back to the apostles for a second. Christ was their primary source, okay? You guys know primary source, secondary source. Primary source means I fought in World War II. Secondary source means I read a book about World War II, okay? So the apostles had Christ as their primary source. And having him as their primary source, they then wrote down Scripture by leading of the Spirit. They wrote down Scripture with others. And that then became our primary source that now we dive into and we, we use and see to, to get to know God. 
So they saw, they heard, they touched. They wrote the Bible, we read the Bible, and we begin to understand the things of God. Through their interaction with Christ and the leading of the Spirit, these men wrote what became our primary source, and then our faith, as Paul says in Romans, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay? You can also look in John 20, when John says the purpose of his writing, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so these things were written so that we may believe. So we look into things and we believe through these words, faith comes from hearing. The apostles saw, heard, touched, and proclaimed, including writing. That was part of their proclamation, was writing it down for future generations. We hear the message of the gospel through the words they wrote. And God uses this message to bring about faith and make us wise for salvation, opening our eyes, giving us the mind of Christ. But then, again, those eyes have to be trained. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, for every good word, there's an equipping, which is another way of saying there is a training in how to see. Turn to Psalm 119, please. Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119 is very long. Have you, have you guys ever seen, I'm going to tangent here for a second. Um, Psalm 119 written in Hebrew. If you look at Psalm 119, you notice it's divided up into like little verses of eight, little sections of eight, and each one has a little, little letter above it. If you look at this in, in actual Hebrew, it is one of the most genius things ever written in the history of mankind. It is almost impossible. What happens here, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So each section follows a certain letter. So you have 22 letters, you have sections of eight, I'll do the math for you, it's 176. You have 176 kind of verses in this psalm. And that first little section, it has like a little letter there. All eight of those verses begin with that letter. In the second section, all eight of those verses begin with that letter. On down the line, on down the line for 176 verses can't even do that. Like, he didn't even cheat. Like, he didn't be like, zebras are cool. Um, or like Xerox or, you know, whatever we use for our, our alphabet stuff. He goes through, and it's not just cool in looking at it, but every single one of those 176 verses is about the Word of God, directly about the Word of God. It is almost impossible to read through Psalm 119 and not have an enormous passion to dive into God's word, just a voracious appetite for it, okay? So Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then if you look over at 130, Psalm 119, 130, it says the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So your word is a lamp, it's a light, and the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So just like a lamp brings light from the darkness, 
and allows you to clearly see what's in front of you, giving you proper perspective to walk along the path. The Word of God brings light to the darkness around you, allowing you to more clearly see what's in front of you and giving you new perspective in whatever situation we happen to find ourselves. Being soaked in God's Word allows us to develop lens through which we're able to see and interpret our entire world and our specific situations. We should expect so much more from our time in the Word than simply walking away with a little bit of good advice or a couple of to-dos. We should expect to gain a clear understanding of truth, which then drastically affects how you see every single other thing in your life. It affects your worldview. It gives you new lens through which to see everything else. It affects how we see. It sets how we see. You'll have to forgive me. I think in movies a lot. And so for me, this... This idea was solidified through, through a movie quote. Um, a few years ago, it's a movie, Sherlock Holmes. So there's a certain scene where you have Sherlock and you have Dr. Watson. And Watson is about to step into a trap. And Sherlock says, Watson, wait. Watson stops in his tracks. And he, he sits there for a second and he looks. And he looks around and he finally sees the trap in front of him. And still looking at the trap... He asked Sherlock, how did you see that? And Sherlock's answer, answer is simple, and it's genius. His answer is, because I was looking for it. How did you see that? Because I was looking for it. The Word of God teaches us what to look for. We're better able to see God at work when we know what to look for. Scripture helps us to know God. It helps us to know his character and the way that he works. It gives us a basis to understand if something is consistent with the God of the word because his character never changes. What we see and hear from God's word has to have an impact on what we see and hear around us. There's a book that was written early 20th century, ironically enough, called How to Read a Book. Um, by a guy named Mortimer Adler. And at the very beginning, he says, two men read the exact same thing. They read the exact same passage. One of them reads it better than the other. He asks the question, how can two men read the exact same thing, but one of them reads it better than the other? And the answer that the entire book, he spends the entire book answering is, one man reads it better than the other because he approaches the text with better questions. Okay? It's the same way as we expose scripture, as we look and expose our lives. We're going to see God when we know what to look for, when we approach our lives, our situations with better questions, knowing how God works, who he is, what his character is. So we're able to take the same raw data of our days, same stuff, and we are actually able to see it differently with a new lens, okay? Looking at the same stuff, we're seeing it with a new lens. Casey and I normally live overseas. Last summer, we happened to be in Spain, and Casey was pregnant. She was 20, 20 weeks pregnant at the time. And we went to the doctor there at her 20-week checkup. While we were there, we found out that our daughter, um, unborn daughter, had several major 
heart issues. So we met with the doctor there, um, and the doctor said, there's no way you can have this, this baby over here where you normally live, in the country where you normally live. So you need to go back to the States. So we got back to the States in August. Amelia was born on November 11th. Um, she's right over there. You can actually see her. She's got the little tube in her nose. Um, beautiful. Just stunning. Um, fortunately, takes after her mom. Um, nine days after she was born, she had her first open heart surgery on November 20th. Um, the next day, we were in the room, and she still actually had her, her chest still open. I have the video to prove it. Um, and while we're sitting there, we're watching her, all of her numbers on the screens, and her numbers nosedive. I mean, they just, they plummet. Yeah, see, she doesn't like that. Um, and nurses, doctors, everyone freaked out. They got to the point where they all look at us and said, you need to leave the room. Um, so we left. And three hours later, they came out and said, we found out what was wrong. Um, and we, we found, you know, we caught it and she's going to survive. So we spent six weeks in the hospital with her and then four more weeks at Ronald McDonald House. We got back to Greenville and she couldn't be around very many people because her body was too weak to be able to survive pretty much any sickness whatsoever. She had her second heart surgery about four weeks ago and she is now kicking and, and laughing and, um, and she's incredible. Almost every single person in this room already knows most or all of that story because from the very beginning when this church heard about it, you guys were praying for us and you guys have walked with us every single second um, that we've gone through this. The reason we're bringing it up this morning, um, it's not just some random tangent. It's because if you want to know how we've stayed sane, how we've survived, it's very simple. Um, the Spirit of God has given us strength. Both the, the Church of God in Crosspoint and our families have come together to support us in every way. And it's been the word of God that has given us the perspective that we needed to put one foot in front of the other and make it through the days where you're looking at our numbers and they are just one or two levels above keeping her alive and you don't know what to do because you can't do anything um, day in and day out. Um, back before all of this happened, beginning of last summer, before we found out about her heart stuff. We had already been going through some scripture. What I want to do is walk you guys through some very specific scriptures that God has used to help us see and understand our situation in the way that we needed to. Okay? There you go. So um, we can go into scripture, we could have gone to scripture and saw all kind of ways this has been played out. But this morning, I wanted you guys to see we're not just talking about a theory. We're not talking about something removed that we've heard that happens. 
These are things that have kept us afloat um, during this last year. Okay, before we started going through any of this, we had been sitting and praying through Isaiah 37. You don't have to turn to, to any of these. Um, but in Isaiah 37, it's talking about the remnant of the house of Judah that's going to come back. And he says that the remnant is going to take root downward and they're going to bear fruit upward. Okay? So it's the image of a tree that has deep, deep roots. And because of those deep roots, you have fruit that comes up and it's bearing fruit upward. It then leads us to Psalm 1. It then leads us to Jeremiah 17 because all of those have the same exact imagery of this tree that's firmly planted by streams of water. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. It was through this imagery that the day that we heard about our heart issues, um, they actually were sitting there at the desk and gave us the option to abort her. Um, They kept using the term, if you still want to keep her. Um, And we thanked them and said, absolutely, our understanding is that she's a gift from God. We're going to see this through. And we, we went outside and just bawled. I mean, just fell apart. Um, But right after doing that, the imagery that came to mind is there's a tree that can be planted by streams of water that it yields its fruit in its season. It doesn't matter when the storm comes. It doesn't matter when the drought comes. At the end of the day, no matter what's happened, the tree is still standing. That's one of the imageries, one of the truths that has kept us upright in going through the ins and outs of all of this. A few others. Very early on, all parents have to do this at some point. Um, We had to do it very early on in going back to the Genesis 22 account of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham understanding Isaac may be my son, but first and foremost, he is your child. He is your creation, God. And so everything that he is, we give to you. We fully offer him up to you to do with him as you please. Okay? One of the things that helped us through, because you had this idea of, okay, surgeries, and, okay, how does that fit together with praying, and should you just pray, and how do doctors, you know, are you not being faithful if doctors are coming in? One of the things that helped us put this put together is Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, you have them going to rebuild the wall. And it's a really cool passage because Nehemiah said, we then had guys that came. We had enemies that came to to attack us. And he says, we didn't stop. He said, what we did, he said, we prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them. We prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them. And he said, as we were working, we actually worked in such a way that we were working with one hand and we had a sword in the other hand for when the enemy came, okay? So that helped us understand these things aren't mutually exclusive, okay? You can both pray to God and you can set a guard, okay? So we can be fully on, fully understanding that God is in control, that God is um, watching over her in every way and 
we can go to Children's Medical Center and be thankful, eternally thankful, for the care that, that she's been given. Incredible stuff. Stuff I couldn't even believe. Um, the morning of her first surgery, what uh, I happened to be reading through Luke, and I guess I needed the encouragement to pray further because Luke 18.1, it starts with the, it's the parable of the persistent widow. And the parable starts, it says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Um, so that entire morning, we prayed and we didn't lose heart. Okay? Second Corinthians 4. Um, we, we actually preached on this a few years ago. But it was a specific moment when Casey and I were, were down in the cafeteria, Amelia's having surgery, and we're looking at each other going, what if she dies? Um, what do we do? Um, and Second Corinthians 4 says, For we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Um, these are the passages with others that have been a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. They've allowed us to see in front of us, to understand God at work, to understand that there are bigger things going on, that there are deeper truths in how we feel on a particular day. They've been our lens. They've provided our worldview. They've provided our framework um, to go through what for us has been the most difficult thing we've ever gone through. Uh, I know a lot of your stories, a lot of you guys have gone through or are going through stuff that's, that this pales in comparison to. But it doesn't matter the intensity because it's the same gospel, it's the same word that allows us to see our circumstances differently, okay? You could see the exact same thing. Two people could look at our situation and you could see the exact, you see the raw data, the raw materials, the exact same stuff. But you can look at it one way and see hurt and pain and fear and doubt, and all that that's wrapped up in it. But you can look at it through the lens of gospel, through the lens of Christ, through the truths of God's word, and you can actually have joy along the way. Okay, It's possible. It's not a theory. This is what the word of God does. It opens our eyes to, to not only be seen, so we see the word of God, but then the word of God affects how we see every single other thing. I don't want to end with us. I want to end back with the ideas of 1 John. The apostles saw and they proclaimed. What they proclaimed became our Bible through which we hear the word of God and proclaim it to others. That Bible is not only something that we see, but something that actually affects the way that we see everything else. Because the apostles saw, because they heard, because they touched Christ and proclaimed him to others, we are now able hear the words of God in the scripture and viewing our lives through them are able to proclaim them to others. 
We're able to see Christ in all things, in our joys, in our pains, in our ups, and in our downs. And we proclaim him to a world that very, very desperately needs to hear him, to hear his voice, and to see his word lived out in our lives. Thank you guys for walking with us. Thanks for listening this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are incredible. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. I pray that it's not something we go to to get a little quick fix um, or to make us feel better about ourselves or to simply gain head knowledge so that we can sound more spiritual than the guy beside us. I pray that your word would have its way with us that it would affect the way we see everything else. I pray this doesn't remain theory, but that it works its way into our lives, into the good and the bad, that we'll see everything through your word, and then we'll glorify you in all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for that, Derek, and that was a um, well-prepared meal, and uh, it was one that was... Hardy, I don't know how you got through that. I was about to uh, lose it on the front row. It was, um, it's been a wonderful story. And um, in, in a lot of ways, corporately, along with Derek and Casey, we have heard and seen and looked upon and touched and enjoyed the word of life together and trusted him together. So we, together, it was very fitting uh, that we got to enjoy you proclaiming this morning as you exposed First John chapter 1 and exposed and shared the story that you guys have been through and are on. I thought what would be fitting this morning for our supper would be Psalm 34. If you'd like to turn there, I'm going to read the entire psalm and uh, just make a few comments and then we'll have our supper together. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction, though, will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Thinking about some of the senses that we consider this morning, hearing, seeing, touching, um, some of those senses are right here in this passage. Tasting specifically what leads up to it, the psalmist, in this case David, the same writer of Psalm 119 that we enjoyed together this morning. His verbs, some of his verbs were, I bless, I boast, I sought. And some of the verbs that he calls the people to in this psalm is, let's magnify, let's exalt, let's take refuge, and let's taste. We do that together every single week when we take the supper, literally. I know it's a little wee piece of bread, and it's not what I would hunger for for a meal. I mean, I wouldn't go to a restaurant and pay money for a little piece of bread and a little cup, but it's the best meal I eat all week because I know what it represents. It's a weekly reminder of the greatest story that's ever been told that we are right smack dab in the middle of. Derek testified to it this morning. We're walking in it together. Let's distribute the elements and then we'll enjoy this meal together. One of the things I appreciated from this psalm that in some ways um, impacted this morning are the afflictions that are mentioned in that psalm. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, the psalm ends with many are the afflictions of the righteous. Then on the other hand, affliction will slay the wicked. So wicked folks experience affliction and righteous folks experience affliction. But for those who seek Christ, it's in that affliction. It's not after the affliction. It's through the affliction that we taste him sweetest and taste him the most. Man, we don't have to have affliction as an escort to know God. In fact, the thing I enjoyed in Derek's testimony there of their, their family story, he and Casey, how this has unfolded, is they were already in the word when they had news about little Amelia. It wasn't they had to go scramble and go, oh, let's go find a solution. Let's go find some help. They were already in Isaiah 37. Is that what you said? They, were, they had their feet planted in it. So you certainly go to it in times that you're not in, in affliction to be equipped and prepared and readied for those times when you're in it. And when you're in it, don't pine to be out of it. Be thankful in all things, thanking God. Lord, you're going to show me your face more in this moment than I might experience any other way. For us as a family, it was the two kids sitting on the end there, big kids now, young woman and young man, um, learning about their vision. That's one of the things that we experienced as a family. It was an affliction that taught us, man, we saw his face. Nearly 20 years of marriage that Christie's had to wrestle, struggle, struggle with being married to a joker like me. We've had an affliction 
but it's been a good one. Man, I don't know. I'd be standing right here if we'd had the wind to our back, frankly. So we can truly be thankful in all things. Man, I hope today, if you're thinking about some affliction that's come to mind, that you can enjoy, um, that God uses not um, even that, but that he uses especially that to where we can taste and see. So let's taste together and enjoy that the Lord is good. Taste and drink. Let me pray. Lord, I'm thankful that you use even afflictions as tutors to tasting your goodness. Thankful for the story that you gave us through the apostles. I'm thankful that they could touch and see and poke your son and touch him and hear him. I'm thankful that they shared a meal with him so that we could share a meal with you. I'm thankful that we had the chance to see and hear and touch and taste and see this morning. We are grateful, Lord. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in song.